Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Martini Olive transmitter, as much of a firestorm as it created, was never in private use for the simple reason that if you poured gin over <laughs> the olive in your martini glass, the whole thing would short out. Hello, and a very warm welcome to another episode of Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions brought to you from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. This is the fifth and final episode of our little mini-series we've been doing, Inventing Bond celebrating the inventions that made Bond Bond. And now, if you've listened to the other episodes, which I hope you have, you will have had to have put up with my really bad Sean Connery impression and my bad Roger Moore impression. And I suddenly thought, actually, as we were doing this one, I want to do something about that. And I thought what we'd do is I've invited the very wonderful Anil Desai, actor, comedian, raconteur, on the show just to teach us, me and you, how to do a proper... Sean Connery impression. And else, good to see you. You too. <laughs> it's been a while. You look very smart. You're wearing a, a sort of dinner jacket and a white shirt. This Here's what happened. Like uh, they said, Anil, Dallas would like you to help him uh, impersonate James Bond. And I thought, well, I'm not going to be sitting here yeah. in a T-shirt trying to do that. So I thought, why don't I put on a shirt and jacket and then I can play the role. And uh, there we are. I've got a, I've got a martini here. Nice. So basically, <laughs> if you want to do a James Bond impression, the secret is step one, actually put the clothes on. You know what? Yeah, why not? Feel it. Now, here's because I, the thing is that when I try and do Sean Connery, it just, it, it's just like I go, I do that kind of thing where I go, oh, Sean Connery. And I've been trying to listen to Sean Connery and I've been trying to listen, I listen to Steve Coogan, you know, and Rob Brydon do it, you know, and they're okay, but you're the master because I've heard you do it. And I'm like, oh, we've got to get an L on the show because he's brilliant. So where do we start? How do I start to do this? I, just, I always start with like what visualize them and, and try and get their persona in your skin, in your bones. And then you want to sort of do a, a look that they do. Like, can you raise an eyebrow? Yes, I'm raising an eyebrow. <laughs> You're doing a lot of push-ups with that eyebrow. I can only do, I can only do my left eyebrow. <laughs> Sound-wise, uh, you want to... So here's what I tell my audiences when we're doing Sean Connery. I say, take any word that starts with the letter S and then put an H immediately after it. Okay. So Dallas, I'll see you on Saturday. We'll have sausages. They'll be shizzling. Hope it's a shiny day. <laughs> so you've already got, so you, but it's just, but it's literally just putting an H after every word that starts with S. Okay, let me try. Let me try that. Let's have sausages and they're sizzling. Sizzling in the saucepan. Sizzling in the saucepan. Okay, yeah, now here's the here's a, here's a, a crucial thing that I've learned about the James Bonds is that, and I guess Sean started it. They they don't project. Uh, they're not. All of their projections as a character are, are the suits and the gadgets, the action, the cars. It's all out there. 
but when they speak, they're quite, the, the voice is quite sort of in the back there. And it's sort of like that there, see? So if you, uh, if you imagine a goat, <laughs> if you imagine a goat that's uh, in pain, so you go, ah, and if, if you get that, you see? <laughs> so good. Okay, wear a jacket and a tuxedo, have a martini, put an H in front of S words and sound like a goat, a, a dying goat. Ah. Okay, let me try that. The sausages are sizzling in the saucepan. That's not bad. That's that sounds that's better than what you started with. It's better than it was. Okay, well that's good for Sean Connery. Just very quickly, how's your Roger Moore? Can you do Roger Moore? I've never heard you do Roger Moore. So I don't. Know I always I sort of did the eyebrow acting. Really, it's. Um, oh God, you're so good. You're so good. Well, as soon as you raise an eyebrow, it all happens, doesn't it? Really. <laughs> and his and again, he, his voice doesn't. It, he's not shouty. It's not coming out. It's it, it's just kind of in there. It's sort of. And then Pierce Brosnan is another one who's. Uh, Again, all the action is out there. All the projection is outside. See, the voice is actually, you keep it back in here. And it's kind of a whispery sort of James Bond, isn't he? So he's got the slight Irish thing as well, but there you are. It's so good. It's so good. How can I just ask just really quickly? Because I've, I've always been absolutely amazed by what you can do. I mean, I just think it's phenomenal. When did you, how did you, when did you like first know that you could do impressions? Like, what was it? Did you just... Like, why is it that some people can do it and, and other people can't? When I was a kid in school and I just, I, I could mimic any cartoon that was on for my classmates and they'd laugh and they'd react and they'd love it. And then, then I knew I could, I could do something that other kids couldn't do. Everyone else was kicking a ball about or, you know, writing literature or whatever, poems and stuff. And I was just like, yeah, I do these voices. <laughs> but um, I only did them as a party trick, really, uh, for most of my life until... People like yourself, friends like yourself, went, no, put it on stage. And then when I did, I, I stopped doing it as a party trick. and Because now I, yeah. I, I I do it for wherever I go, so for work. Listen, we, I've, I've got to do the introduction to this episode. Will you do it for me? There's like four or five lines. Can you do it in your best in your best Connery or more? Yeah, I mean, it, it's your show, so uh, let's... Well, we think of spying as something very far removed from the everyday... You're unlikely to be poisoned by an umbrella or be tricked by someone wearing a fake moustache. But there's uh, one form of spying that is part of everyday life. Wiretapping. Everything is bugged. And the surprising thing is that this is not new. To round off our James Bond mini-series, we're looking at the spy tech that has long been an unpleasant part of everyday life. My guest today is Brian Hockman, author of The Listeners, a history of wiretapping in the United States. Well, how about that? It's perfect. It's brilliant. Brian, thanks for stopping by. It kind of the thing is about bugging it when we when we say bugging it sounds very James Bondy and and but then we are being bugged aren't we being bugged all the time now you know that thing where you say you'd be talking having a conversation with someone and then suddenly you get the advert I'll be talking about something really random like Velux Windows and then suddenly there it is of course yeah in our connected world our digitized world i think we should assume that all things are recorded on one level or another but this as i've 
discovered, and this is the part of the impulse behind the book that I've written, is that this is a very old state of affairs, a state of affairs that in fact dates back to the middle of the 19th century. And I think it's important when we think about the reality that we live under now and our assumption that all things are recorded and the, the, both the paranoia and the pleasure that comes from that set of relationships, that this is, we're not the first, an earlier generation. No. I suppose the, di- the difference is, well, we'll, we'll we're going to start at the beginning in a moment. I'm just getting this off my chest just because it was really bothering me. <laughs> <laughs> like the other day, I, I, I didn't even have a conversation with somebody about something. I was thinking about something and then it appeared in adverts. I'm like, good God, it's reading my mind. The difference is, I suppose, that it's not like Big Brother is listening to us. There isn't. There aren't people like sitting with headphones behind in in wall cavities listening to us. It's just algorithms. In a way, it's kind of even more sinister. It is, and I think the Big Brother metaphor is, of course, a metaphor about the state and about the citizens' relationship to an all-hearing, all-seeing government power. But of course. In today's world, in today's regime of listening and surveillance, we need to think about how corporate entities drive surveillance power and how government power is also a result of corporate partnerships. This, too, has very old roots. But I think certainly you're right in, in you know, today uh, it's it's far, you know, the scale is unfathomable from the perspective of even, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. And it's certainly not your voice that matters. It's the voice of the mass. No, no, no. It's definitely my voice that matters. It's definitely <laughs> my voice. It's my voice, the ones listening. Crikey, let's go all the way back to the beginning and then we'll, we, we'll, we'll, we might sort of end up back here again. I want to talk, actually, there's a term that keeps coming up and it's called eavesdropping. And I want to talk to you about just the word eavesdropping. It's obviously we're, we're familiar with the word. But what, I, what, what suddenly struck me reading your stuff was, is that actually the beginnings of surveillance begins really with architecture. There was kind of architecture that was designed in order to be able to listen, physically listen to people. Sure. And the term eavesdropping itself is an architectural yeah, exactly. metaphor. The term comes from kind of old English and it referred to the place outside of a home where rain drops off of the ease to the ground. And this was a site where, you know, if you were a prying ear, you could stand outside and possibly listen in to what was going on inside. Mm. And archaeologists have discovered built arrangements that afforded listeners to overhear conversations dating all the way back to the BC era. Basically, we just, we just want to hear what's going on when we're not there. <laughs> Basically, humans are really, really nosy. Actually, I think sure, and some and some evolutionary biologists believe that this is a eavesdropping is itself an evolutionary uh, advantage. Other species listen in on others. This is common in birds, for instance. I was going to say corvids are corvids are, are notorious for for eavesdropping and or or kind of spying generally on other corvids to see where. They, they may bury things or do things or hide things. Right, so it is de- it deep in nature, yeah. indeed. Interesting. But let's start at the beginning. In, term, in terms of kind of eavesdropping or bugging or wiretapping, like where do we start with the terminology? Where, where was the kind of the beginnings of, of u- using technology in order to, rather than architecture, in order to be able to spy on people and sort of listen in? So wiretapping as... A technological practice dates back to the middle of the 19th century. 
And this was an era in which signal operators, outsiders had the ability, technologically speaking, to listen in on Morse code as it traveled along the telegraph system. So would you just like hook a wire on and sort of how, how, would, it, how would it work? Just You essentially cut into the wire and append or solder on an extension line. And a little later on, devices were developed in order to make this process a little easier, what were called pocket sounders. And really, it's not until the U.S. Civil War that it becomes a tool of art, wiretapping. And it's used on both sides, the Union and the Confederacy, in order to intercept military communications and also send disinformation because pocket sounders could both receive messages and also send them. Just So what do you mean by pocket sounder? Just, desc- just describe what we're talking about here. I can understand soldering a wire on to, to intercept a message, but a pocket sounder. So a telegraph sounder is a device that both receives and sends telegraph signals. It almost looks like a little hammer and it taps out the electronic... Like a Morse code tapper. Exactly, a Morse code tapper. And... These are not particularly complicated electronic contrivances. And by the 1860s, engineers had found a way to make them portable. I've held them in, my, in the palm of my hand. And Civil War operators would carry them on their journeys in the field and use them to hook into the telegraph system wherever they were. This is really interesting. What, but this, this idea of actually using them to spread disinformation. I mean, all the news over the last five years has been about disinformation and Russian disinformation and American election disinformation and Brexit disinformation. I mean, this isn't obviously, <laughs> this is, I kind of assumed this was quite a new phenomenon, but it doesn't. It goes all the way back to the to the American Civil War. Can you, do you have an example of kind of what disinformation they were spreading? I mean, like, how, how would it work? You know, the accounts vary. And it is, I think it is analogous, although certainly not on the same scale, to like fake news. But you could, in theory, in tapping a, a telegraph wire, both listen in on, say, the union's communications, various troop movements or supply shipments were intercepted, and also send the enemy off his track. The problem in so doing was that At the time, and already, both sides had developed a a fairly elaborate encoding system, cipher systems, that would help know that messages were coming from a trusted source. Mm -hmm. And also, of course, to, to ensure their secrecy, their security. So messages that were sent in outdated codes, disinformation that comes in the clear, as the saying goes, like uncoded, betrayed the fact that the enemy was listening in or on the other end of the line. But there are cases where wiretapping arrangements did, in fact, work. It's one of those things when we think about wiretapping, we think about old movies and stuff, and it was became a sort of staple in popular culture for spy thrillers. But did, when did that happen? When did, when did it sort of move to actually becoming wider known in, in, in wider society? Much earlier than I had ever anticipated. The Civil War signal operators, their doings, their daring escapades on the battlefield very quickly get picked up in the popular press on both sides of the Atlantic. In fact, there's really interesting British accounts of Civil War wiretapping 
in the 1860s, and the British referred to wiretapping as wire milking in the period instead. We like to do things differently. <laughs> I could under well, I can understand where milking comes from. Maybe it's it's a, it's an odd and somewhat. I don't know, disgusting metaphor. I don't know. But anyway, very quickly, uh, the popular press picks up on the specter of the telegraph operator who's listening in. And in the postbellum decades, as wiretapping proliferates, particularly among the criminal class, popular novelists, popular news accounts fixate on the idea that this growing telecommunications infrastructure, first the telegraph and then the telephone, has leakiness to it, has a kind of porousness. And everything from kind of pulp fiction in the early, late 19th, early 20th century to even early films feature images of wiretappers doing their dirty business. It's an interesting metaphor you use, porous, because it's funny when sort of new technologies come along, like the telegraph, it does, there is a kind of seepage into other areas, like obviously criminal things. We did an episode about the telegraph and parapsychology and how sort of ghost hunters would, would use the telegraph to try and communicate with the spirit world. It's just really interesting that, that porous nature of, of technology and how the thing that it's designed to do, there is a kind of spread into other slightly odder weird areas. I guess this is a, a good example. Hey, listen, tell me about the detector phone. This was an interesting... I'm, I'm actually looking at an advert. This is from, I guess, early 20th century, 1915, 16, the, the detector phone. This seems to be a kind of an early example of bugging, as, as I imagine, bugging rather than wiretapping as such. The invention of recorded sound dates back to the 1880s. Edison. It's always Edison. As the technology develops, a variety of market uses come into focus. By the turn of the 20th century, small-scale inventors are working with phonograph and phonograph-like technologies in order to enable eavesdropping. They imagined the inventors of technologies like the detectaphone which was essentially a microphone connected to a long wire and a speaker on the other end. They imagined a wide variety of uses that weren't necessarily limited to the detective or investigative arena for like law enforcement or private detection. This was initially marketed to businesses. You could ensure, you know, monitor conversations between customers and salesmen. And also they were marketed to doctors. They could listen to their patients or even insane asylums. They were marketed to them as well. And this was a wide open area of the law. So it was totally legal. So there was no, well, presumably, yeah, the law hadn't caught up with the technology. Never does. Yeah. So the idea here is that this is covert. You would hide the microphone somewhere. Right. You could hide the microphone in the corner of a room behind a flower pot or in a desk conceal the wire leading to an adjacent room where someone, usually a stenographer, would listen in and transcribe the conversation, or it was put down on wax, so to speak. And these technologies develop over the decades, becoming more and more invasive as a result of a variety of technical innovations, most notably the invention of the transistor after World War II. This enabled devices like the detectaphone to get a lot smaller yes. and to operate remotely. And 
this is the invention of what we now know as bugging. I'll, co- I'll come on to that in a minute, that, that sort of miniaturization. It's just, it does seem to be just human nature. When I was a kid, I remember at my school, there was a, there was a staff room where the teachers would go, and I, me and my friend Will, we, we made a bugging device. We got, we got a microphone and we broke in and we hid it. And then we had a really, yeah, and then a tape recorder, and we we listened to it. How how old are how old were you at the time? Like thirteen, maybe fourteen. We were really naughty. The reason why I ask is because, and look, you're you're now like you know. Now look at me. I'm a criminal mastermind. Now look at you recording conversations. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know what? My school—they've invited me back this summer to do the to do the talks. I better not mention that. Or maybe I mean I think maybe the students would be interested. But the reason why I ask, Dallas, is because most electronic surveillance experts, pioneers in the field, got their start really early on. The basic principles of wiretapping or eavesdropping are very simple from an electronics perspective. And the the legends in the field of electronic surveillance, at least in the United States, all of them, Harold Lipset, Jim Voss, Bernard Spindel, even Francis Ford Coppola, the great film, Hollywood film director, director of The Conversation, the world's greatest film about eavesdropping, they all tapped telephones uh, as early as the age of 12 or 13, usually to listen Why? to neighbors yeah, or listen that was to your siblings. Yeah. I had this electronic breakthrough when I realized that a pair of headphones could also be used as a microphone. And so the way I did it was I pulled apart a pair of Sony Walkman headphones and used the headphones, which I which we hid in the room, and then created a bugging device. That's fantastic. And look at you. I mean, again, I'm looking at you right now wearing headphones. I mean, again, this is all like your future was written right then. I know. You didn't even know it. We'll be back after this short break. From biblical fame to its fabled great walls, Babylon was home to kings, conquerors, and wonders of the ancient world. But what do we actually know about this legendary city? And how much is still shrouded in mystery? Join me, Tristan Hughes, every Sunday throughout May on the Ancients as we delve into the story of Babylon. We'll be covering topics varying from the King Nebuchadnezzar II and how he forged a massive Babylonian empire. We'll be exploring the mystery of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon looking at world-renowned objects such as the Cyrus Cylinder, and also looking at Babylon in the aftermath of one of the most well-known conquerors in the whole of history, Babylon after Alexander the Great. That's all to come this May on The Ancients, every Sunday. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Actually, there was a, who was, there was a name you mentioned there. Uh, was it Lipsick? Is that his name? Harold Lipsick, yes. Hal Lipsick. Harold Lipsick. Now he's uh, he's quite interesting because there's a there's a famous story about Harold Lipsick. And actually, actually, before we go to Harold Lipsick, this idea of sort of post-war miniaturization, miniaturization, that's sort of Bell Laboratories. That's the invention of the of the the transistor. Bell Laboratories. We actually did an episode on this podcast. If you're interested in in, in, in Bell Laboratories, they 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 did they did amazing stuff. But yes, tell me about Lipsick because he didn't he famously bug his martini when he was in a courtroom trying to give evidence about surveillance, something weird. Right. So this is a very interesting story, a great story. So Harold Lipset was the most famous, most notorious private detective in the United States. Did he have like a hat? And did he have one of those doors with the kind of blind that only a little bit of light comes through? The name's Lipset. <laughs> right, sort of. He he wasn't, he, he, he didn't quite... Well, actually, interestingly, he, he wanted to work against that image of private detection. Why? It's a cool image. I'm like, don't work against that. <laughs> it's cool, but it's also a little disreputable, at least in the American mind. And the pri- private detection industry explodes after World War II for a variety of reasons. And Lipset begins trying to create space for himself in this crowded market in San Francisco, in the West Coast, in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And the way that he distinguished himself and and his practice from his competitors was employing an in-house electronics technician. His name was Ralph Birch. And the two of them would fashion eavesdropping devices and he would record his clients or their enemies for whatever reason they wanted him to. And this garnered him quite a reputation, a notorious reputation. He, uh, by the late 1950s, was known as America's super snooper. And he's employed in about 500 cases per year by 1960. That's his backstory. But though I want to know about them because he, he, he had to give evidence. Because there was basically an outcry about this idea of bugging and of the, the fact that everything shrunk really small and you could have like a microphone in your rose in your lapel or something, things like that. Right. So he's called to Washington to testify before Congress twice, first in 1959 and then most famously in 1965. In both cases, he's called to account for this industry, this new industry of wiretapping and bugging for hire that had grown up over the course of the 20th century in the gray areas of the law. And in 1965, in order to dramatize just how pervasive and unique these technologies were and just how 
far, they had made their way into the everyday fabric of American life. He appears before Congress holding a martini glass in his hand and pretended throughout his testimony to sip from this glass, to sip a martini. Can you imagine doing this today? I'm just thinking of like, did no one say, why the hell have you got a martini? Why are you in court drinking martini? This was all planned in advance. And at the end of his testimony, he played everything that he had said up to that point back for rhetorical effect. He had recorded it allegedly via a microphone hidden in the olive in his (laughs) martini glass. And this created a firestorm. It was an extraordinary performance and drew attention to this real loophole in the law Mm. and eventually hastened a series of FCC bans on the private use of electronic surveillance devices. And when federal... What's FCC? The Federal Communications Commission. I see. Okay. And also in 1968, when Congress finally gets around to writing the first federal wiretapping law, the first device that's banned as a result of this new law that outlawed the private use of and manufacture of electronic surveillance equipment was the Martini Olive transmitter, which which was Lipset's invention. Now, the interesting thing here is that the Martini Olive transmitter, as much of a firestorm as it created, as many laws as were written to respond to this new technological development, was never in private use for the simple reason that if you pour gin over the olive in your martini glass, the whole thing would short out. But this really captured the public imagination. And for me, this was such a, like a, a perfect story of myth and reality blending together. It's really interesting, that idea of the sort of, the, the kind of, the, the, the myth of it all, because there's loads of examples of if you get, I've got loads of old popular mechanics from the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s, and there's loads of things about kind of surveillance bugging and, and that kind of stuff. And even kind of kids stuff as well for kids, you know, the idea of like spy kits that you could buy that you make your own, build your own electronic kind of surveillance device and lie detectors and all that kind of thing. Seems to be, it seems to yeah, sort of capture a public was, mood. Maybe it was the James was, Bond thing, maybe because it fed into that kind of James Bond narrative. We all want to be detectives. Absolutely. And and there was a wide open market for this. It becomes regulated in the United States, this market for spying devices in 1968. What's interesting is that manufacturers of this equipment found really interesting ways to get around the federal government's ban. The first was they began legally selling their devices to law enforcement, but also they start repurposing them. One of the most fascinating cases that I encountered in the 1970s are all of these electronic surveillance companies that were seemingly disrupted by the 1968 law. They began repackaging these bugging devices, almost detectaphone-like devices, as baby monitors in the 1970s. Wow! How, how, be- how better, you know, what, what a, well, anyway, there's a lot to say about that, but it's, it's just a sort of creative rebranding, creative repackaging of the same old bugging equipment that had grown up in the gray areas of the law in really the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. And by the 1970s, these are in the hands of law enforcement, legally speaking, and also they're in your toddler's bedroom, making sure that they're 
asleep. And now it's just gone crazy. Now you've got now you can have miniature cameras, ring cameras, all those things. And crikey, man! I think you can get apps now to, to detect whether there are camera lenses hidden in your Airbnb. I've seen these like on on Instagram. Again, these are all very old stories. Quick one, very quickly. Why is it called bugging? Where did the term bugging come from? Is it like fly on the wall? Is it, I kind of that's what I imagined, but. It, it, maybe it's not. I'd... I should know the answer to this question. It, the word bug doesn't accrue the connotation of, a, of an electronic listening device, a concealed miniaturized microphone, until after World War II. And I, I have a feeling it has to do with, I think has to do with the size of the microphones themselves, which were very small and increasingly small as the transistor makes its way into the American market. We should mention just finally as well, I mean, sort of law and we've talked about law enforcement, but this idea of, of Secret Service using bugs to entrap. I, I'm, th- I'm thinking of Donald Trump in kind of Russian hotel rooms and things. This kind of little invention or this idea, we go all the way from wiretapping to kind of really serious kind of political espionage. Yeah, so th- th- that's where I started. When I when I began writing this book, I thought I was going to be writing a book about not Donald Trump, Russian hotel. Well, it's, it began before Trump, but I, I think I, I sort of envisioned myself writing a book about spycraft, yeah, and about the workings of the military surveillance state, both at home here in America and also abroad. And one of the things I was so fascinated to discover is how late in the game the government was to wiretapping, at least wiretapping and electronic eavesdropping under legal jurisdiction. Now, law enforcement and the government has an interest in these technologies early on, but far more pervasive in the period before 1968 are the use of electronic surveillance equipment and devices for hire for much more mundane purposes. The most common use for electronic surveillance equipment in, say, the 1950s, mid-century, in America's eavesdropping capital, New York City, was for the litigation of divorce proceedings, not for spies listening to politicians or law enforcement listening to organized crime. And there was that, but also we need to think about these more domestic, more mundane context in which wiretapping and eavesdropping flourishes. Corporate espionage is another arena. So the book became very different when I discovered just how out in the open this practice was. I never imagined writing a book about private ears, so to speak, for hire, listening to the conversations of unfaithful spouses. That's sort of where the history took me, rather than this more James Bond-like story. What, what do you think about the way that sort of surveillance is going now? Is it just kind of more of the same, just a bit more sophisticated? Are we becoming more obsessed by it? Or has it changed its meaning? If it was a, like sort of catching people out, now it's about selling you more stuff. There are all sorts of resonances between past and present that obviously throw into relief some of the news stories that we see in our feeds today. The most important transformation is just how much our concerns about individual privacy and the incursions of government and technology have attenuated over time. 
as late as 1967 and even into the 1970s, the majority of Americans did not believe that the government or law enforcement or anyone had a right to listen to private conversations. And today, I think those political concerns, the kind of coalition, both conservative and progressive, surrounding the issue of privacy has really been pushed to the margins. And I was surprised by just how central the question of privacy was to American political culture in, like, say, the mid-century years. And I think that's the most important thing that we should be thinking about when we're comparing then and now. Yes, there are some important resonances between, say, the detectaphone in the early 20th century and the Amazon Alexa or the Google Home today. But what's different is how we respond to them. And I think our complacency with these devices that traverse public and private boundaries and I think call into question some of our long-held concerns for privacy. But it's suddenly become a big a big thing, hasn't it? The tech companies are forever now being accused of privacy problems and it's suddenly going from maybe we were complacent before, but now suddenly with social media and Alexa and everything else, it's suddenly gone straight to the top of the agenda, really. These explosive controversies and attention to them really wax and wane over time. So there's, I think, heightened awareness today. Certainly, the TikTok case is a, is a really interesting one. Also concerns in the United States here about the proliferation of facial recognition. There, there's real concerns about this. And those concerns will be in the headlines and then they'll drop out. And you can kind of trace the, the waxing and waning over time, like every decade. It's about 10 years since the Snowden revelations. And yeah, that was a real a moment here in the United States and also in the UK surrounding government spying, government surveillance. And then it recedes into distance. And, and you can kind of go back like each decade. There's one major controversy in which Americans discover the issue of privacy anew. All the while, the ground on which they're fighting seems to be like receding territory. That's really interesting. It's called capitalism, everyone. Exactly, or surveillance capitalism, as the philosopher and historian Shoshana Zuboff has, has called it. We freely surrender our private information in the service of convenience and connectivity. That's the story of capitalism, in, or one of the main stories of capitalism since, say, 1999. And where it's going to leave us I'm not quite sure. Brian, we're going to have to we're going to have to call it a day. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. It's been lovely. It's been a really lovely kind of whistle-stop tour through all kinds of interesting ideas and interesting technologies and things. Listen, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been good. It's been really good. Just for our listeners, your book is called The Listeners: A History of Wiretapping in the United States. But yeah, it's it's been a pleasure and yeah. This conversation's been recorded. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to get in touch if you've got a suggestion for a topic that we should cover. A story, an idea, a piece of technology, something else. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com or give me a prod on Twitter or Instagram or the usual channels. And I look forward to your company next time. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive, 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.